Hi everyone, Sarah Schaefer here. Thanks for checking out Art History Happy Hour. The episode that follows is back from when our podcast was called State of the Arts, and you can now find our episode blog and other resources, including a link to our Patreon page at arthistoryhappyhour.com. Welcome to State of the Arts, the podcast that explores how art and its history shape our world today. My name is Sarah Schaefer. And I'm Tina Rivers-Ryan. And with it being uh, October and we're releasing this episode on Halloween, we got to thinking of some of our favorite spooky images from the history of art. And it just so happened that most of them seem to fall in the same uh, same sort of temporal range and can largely or roughly be uh, associated with the movement romanticism. Um, so we decided to devote this episode to four examples um, from the Romantic era. Um, and Romanticism, just to start, is a really difficult term to define, and we'll try to tease it out by looking at these images. But I want to start by just um, talking about a few points to bear in mind. Romanticism, first of all, had its roots uh, in the mid to late 18th century um, and continued through at least the mid 19th century. And we can find examples of it throughout Europe. And we'll talk about artists in England, Germany, France, and Spain. So it's a really interesting example of an international movement. Uh, It was in part a reaction against the Enlightenment, the sort of interest in rationalizing the natural world and the belief that humans and humans had the capacity to make sense out of everything. Um, It was also partially a reaction against industrialization, um, which throughout the 18th and 19th and 20th centuries would just increasingly infringe on the natural world, the countryside. Romantic artists and writers um, Many of them were interested in exploring um, the limits of science. So a good example of that in literature is Mary Shelley's novel Frankenstein. Um, They were also interested in the limits of human reason. Um, so some of the, the broad themes we'll, be, we'll see in the images that we look at today are the unknown, madness, dreams, death, the sublime, and um, the, the, the power of emotion as opposed to pure reason. Keeping all of those factors in mind, it's probably not a coincidence that many of the the weirdest and and creepiest works of art uh, that we could think of at least were created uh sort of in the mode of romanticism. The first work that I want to discuss is a painting by the German artist Caspar David Friedrich. Um, It's called Abbey in the Oak Forest, and it was painted uh, in 1809 and 1810. And I I partially wanted to start with this work for for, um, sort of personal sentimental reasons. Um, it's one of my favorite paintings, and I saw it for the first time with Tina in Berlin many years ago. It was a great day of art. Yes, it was. Uh, I think you have a picture of me and my foot in front of Menzel's foot feet paintings. I totally do. We yeah. have to dig that up for the podcast. Yeah. Friedrich's painting incorporates a number of the themes that I just mentioned, death, the sublime, nature, into this really, really haunting image. So what we see, and just as a reminder, you can always find our images on our blog, which is arthistory.today. What we see is a 
remote landscape, a forest scene at twilight, at the center of which is a gothic abbey that's in a ruined state. Um, It is surrounded by these gnarled, bare oak trees and a a number of graves, some of which are marked by crosses. In the foreground, uh, we see a procession carrying a coffin into the abbey. And actually, um, in the very foreground, there's a burial plot. Um, the The lower portion of the painting is, is cast in really deep shadow. Um, but the upper two-thirds has this illumination. It's really sort of an odd illumination um, that's still quite somber. Um, and there is a, a, a barely visible crescent moon in the sky. Death really sort of seems to be the prevailing theme here. I mean, of course, we're, we're seeing a burial scene. Um, so death is pretty apparent there. We have the gravestones littering the foreground, but we're also seeing a representation of the cycles of nature and of time. So we're in the dead of winter. The the ground is covered in snow. As I said, the trees are completely bare and the abbey has fallen into decay. So um, we see this this medieval um, edifice that has just fallen by the wayside. It's still sort of in use, as we see in the scene, but um, the the cycle of time has naturally left it in this decayed state. All we see left of the abbey is the very front of its uh, facade. Um, The window that dominates it is broken, the lancet window. Uh, It has no glass, um, and and some of the, the sort of joints are broken. And our view through the window just recedes into the sort of nothingness that is um, that that somber, empty uh, twilight sky. So I, I said that sort of the prevailing theme is this image of death, and we have to ask ourselves, is this a hopeful and optimistic image of death? Um, you know, two-thirds of the painting is given over to this very haunting sky, um, the heavens it, are, are often a sign of, of divinity, of divine presence, but in, in the case of this painting, it's, it's this void without any really clear sign of, or, or any real sign of, of redemption. I mean, there's the moon up there, but again, it's very, um, it's not very easily visible, and it's, for the most part, this blank space. Um, and I just want to, to mention the pendant of this painting, um, which is also on view in Berlin at the Alta National Gallery. Um, it's a painting called Monk by the Sea, um, very similar in tone. Um, and uh, it also demonstrates the sort of vastness of nature as something both awe-inspiring and uh, unsettling and sort of terrifying, this idea um, of what we call the sublime in nature. And it's one that's particularly disquieting to me because I'm terrified of the ocean. So, Which is something I didn't know about you, I think, until we were standing in front of that. And you were talking about how that aspect of it terrified you. And as a native Floridian who grew up on the water, I'm like, right. oh, this is great. Yeah. <laughs> so now we're going to switch our attention from Germany over to Spain, Uh, but stay roughly within the same time period. Uh, I'm going to be talking about a painting by the artist uh, Goya, Francisco de Goya, who was a uh, very accomplished painter who actually was named uh, the painter to the king. Uh, He had a very celebrated career amongst the aristocratic circles in Madrid. Um, 
but he lived for a while and at a certain point in his life he experienced a, a bout of illness and nobody knows exactly what that was but it did cause him to be um, basically deaf and uh, because of that perhaps isolated in some sense from society although he still you know had his friends and socialized um, also throughout the course of Goya's life he witnessed um, both the vogue for French enlightenment in Spain and also the arrival of French troops um, who inflicted terrible atrocities on the Spanish people so the the tension between enlightenment and um, it's it's other uh, is something that Goya lived through very personally. And the specific work I want to talk about is uh, from his paintings known as the black paintings that were painted towards um, the end of his life on the walls of his house, um, sort of out in the suburbs. When he's painting these paintings, it's actually during one of the brief moments in his life of um, peace. Uh, it's known as the constitutionalist interlude. Um, and yet these paintings do not reflect uh, a soul who is at rest um, after, you know, many, many years of, of witnessing war and suffering. Um, in fact, quite the opposite. Um, they're typically described as being very nightmarish. So um, the first thing I want to point out about these works is that they were not intended for public consumption. They were intended for a private patron and not just any private patron, but for himself. And this connects back to the idea of romanticism changing the nature or, or the definition or understanding of what a work of art is, uh, what its purpose is. So it seems as if Goya is sort of in, um, abandoning that Enlightenment idea of art as something that provides a kind of education, whether it's moral or uh, spiritual or political or aesthetic. And instead, he thinks of art as being something that's really just about personal expression. Um, and it doesn't even matter if that expression finds some type of greater audience or carries some sort of profound um, meaning. It, it really just is about uh, holding up a mirror, basically, to the darkest corners of his mind. In the Black paintings, we also see a departure from the typical subject matter of Goya's work. So normally we would expect him to represent uh, a noble, enlightened individual um, in a work of portraiture, or perhaps uh, an important political ruler, like in a portrait of a king or his family, um, or a significant historical event that he's um, turning into a kind of political allegory. Um, here we don't have any of that. What we get are mostly just figures who are drawn from the worlds of fantasy and mythology. So witches and, um, you know, ancient Greek gods, that kind of thing. Um, we do have people, but not people who look uh, refined, enlightened, aristocratic, educated, um, but people who look like they're part of a mob, like they've lost their minds, um, like they've been completely um, uh, taken over by dark emotional forces. And the scenery in which these people are located, whether they're you know gods or, or mobs, um, is, is also different from what we might expect in some of Goya's earlier work. It's not an environment or a setting that is seen rationally. Um, it, it's not a scenery that is illuminated um, through the artist's power of, of close observation. Instead, we just get these black, abstract spaces. 
um, sort of like a twilight zone of, of dreams or nightmares, you know, this this murky space. And I, I should say that, in fact, Goya was um, or has been uh, credited with really perfecting the use of a, a, a particular printing technique known as aquatint much earlier in his career, precisely to be able to capture these kind of dreamy, quasi-nocturnal gray spaces that sort of seem like it's a night scene, but also just seem like a sort of no place. Um, so that is something that he had been using throughout his career. Um, but it, it really um, gets amped up in the black paintings where these figures are all lost in these sort of sea of blackness. So in this regard, you see Goya here enacting a, a kind of romantic withdrawal from reality where um, instead of closely studying nature and trying to copy it, he's inventing forms. And again, this is actually something that Goya is um, working on throughout his career. Um, and it's one of the, will become one of the hallmarks of romantic painting. So the specific painting I want to talk about, the specific black painting is called Saturn Devouring His Children from 1820. And I think this is a perfect emblem of a, a very particular attitude towards classically antiquity that we see emerging in the early 19th century. For so long, artists had put the classical style up on a pedestal, so to speak, and had tried to emulate the way that they understood and depicted the human body and nature. And with Romanticism, you do see this very vehement reaction against some of that classical language. And just to put this in context of some of our previous episodes, Goya's painting, these black paintings are done less than a decade after Lord Elgin brings the Parthenon marbles back to England. So we have this influx of, of ancient Greek art into Europe. Right. So I guess this is a good point to say that, you know, this is a moment in which this rejection of classicism is happening, but it's happening in dialogue with the continued classical tradition, right? That there is a movement called neoclassicism that's basically contemporary with romanticism. And so you have both of these things happening at the same time. So uh, why do I think that this is such a great painting to talk about the abandonment of classical uh, figuration, classical values? Well, if you look at the figure of Saturn, we can see that um, Goya is not really concerned at all with depicting the traditional proportions of the human body. Um, this figure is sort of elongated, um, too tall, right? Sort of lanky looking. Um, we see a lack of interest in, in anatomy, in the actual musculature of the body, in the bone construction, right? If you look at the face, um, the face looks more cartoonish um, than, than like a real face in terms of its dimensions and, and forms. Uh, the flesh isn't rendered in a way where it looks like flesh, like something that is sort of supple with mus muscles and sinews underneath. Instead, it looks sort of like um, uh, like rocky almost, like the coloration of it is very weird and strange. Um, if you look at the bend of uh, the body, like in the knees and the elbows, um, he looks malformed, right? So... Uh, the body of Saturn is itself just basically this grotesquerie. It's totally deformed, um, like a monster. And he seems to be animated by a kind of unholy light. Um, he, there's a demonic sort of expression on his face. Or Actually, I don't even know that it's demonic. It, it really is just a, um, 
almost like a, a, a blankness, which is even more terrifying. You know, his eyes are wide open. He himself seems to be possessed, um, not really acting um, in any sort of rational way. And on top of all of that, what he's eating, I think, is very um, interesting, you could say, in this painting. Um, if you look at other depictions, like the artist Rubens made a depiction of Saturn devouring his children, um, th the children look sort of like babies, right? They look like children, um, babies, toddlers, young kids. Here, Saturn appears to be devouring a fully grown man. And if you look at the way that this man is depicted, well, first of all, it's strange because he's shrunken in size, right? So this makes sense because we know that Saturn was a member of the gods known as the giants. Um, so you have this sort of baby figure that is also a full grown adult. So that's a bit weird. Um, but the way that that adult's body is depicted is much more in line with figuration from the classical world. I mean, he's got these, um, you know, correct proportions, detailed uh, anatomy. And in fact, if you look at it, it even looks, I mean, especially if you think about the color of it, the sort of white color, it looks like a marble statue. It looks like, you know, he's devouring, you know, a statue of Apollo. So in terms of its spookiness, it's very spooky to me because it is, um, about, you know, a father eating his child um, and because the figure of Saturn is just so um, frightening looking. But on top of that, it's also really spooky because it's about an entire tradition of Western art being um, eaten away or set aside. Moving from Spain to England, uh, I want to now talk about a work by William Blake. And William Blake uh, is a person who many of you probably know more as a poet than an artist. Um, but throughout his career, his art was in many ways not intended to be distinct from his poetry. So, for example, the, the work that many of you are probably familiar with, the poem The Tiger, 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 Burning Bright, and that was a poem that was in uh, a, a, a book sort of book manuscript that he created uh, called Songs of Experience. And, and the images that he used to illuminate that text were not meant to be separated um, from the poem at all. Uh, Blake is really sort of in many ways, it, just in terms of his, his biography and personality, sort of a, a romantic hero par excellence. Um, and uh, this had largely to do with his the his emphatic uh, embracing of imagination over reason, um, and this this came through pretty thoroughly in the series of visionary experiences he had throughout his lifetime. Many people thought, and many people still wonder, um, if he was actually sort of insane. Um, and this was something that Blake was very aware of. Um, but he sort of responded at one point by saying that, um, making the statement that all visionary men are accounted madmen. So he was he knew that there was that perception of him. In in terms of his uh, his embracing of the imagination, for him, imagination was the embodiment of divinity. He was someone who was immensely interested in religion, in Christianity, not in sort of uh, the institutions of religion. That was something he was 
pretty vehemently opposed to. Um, but for him, imagination was, as he once said, the eternal body of man, God himself, the divine body. Um, and he was within the Christian faith. Um, he, he was particularly drawn to prophecies, stories of prophecies. And um, that's what his visionary experiences sort of related to and many of his works were essentially prophecies and so the work that i want to discuss is one of his illustrations uh for uh one of one of a number of bible illustrations that he was commissioned to create um and this is i'm going to be looking at one of four that he did for the book of revelations the book of Revelation, which which Blake was tasked to represent, is the last book in the New Testament. It follows the Gospels, it follows Christ's death and resurrection, and um, the Acts of the Apostles, um, and is a, a divine revelation refi- received by Saint John of Patmos, um, and and describes Saint John's vision of the second coming of Christ, the last judgment, and the creation of the New Jerusalem, and. The four images that Blake created for for the Book of Revelations um, are relating to a particular, a couple of, of figures that are described, um, and the image I'm going to be focusing on is called the Great Red Dragon and the Beast of the Sea. And this is coming from chapter 13 of the Book of Revelation. So um, the 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 first figure. So there are two figures in in this um, in this work by Blake. Um, the Beast of the Sea, uh, which is the lower figure that's kind of represented in teal coming out of the sea, um, is described in the first book of chapter thirteen of the Book of Re- Revelation. It says, "And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy." The second figure, which takes up the majority of the work, uh, is the Great Red Dragon, which is described in verses 11 and 12, chapter 13. And, and those read, And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. And he exercises all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. So um, the beast of the sea is generally thought of as a representation of Satan, and the red dragon is often called the false prophet who demands worship of the beast. Um, Blake is so weird. I know. I, that's why I am so fast. Every time I have a chance to research him, I'm, I'm just like, what was going on in that what? man's mind? Um. But of course, this is all coming from the Bible. This isn't this isn't stuff Blake is making up. Yeah, which makes it even weirder. Right. So as I said, the majority of the painting is focused on the the dragon or false prophet. Um, the the dragon is represented in this very muscular way, in a very sort of Michelangelesque way, and. If we look back in the history of art to Michelangelo's depiction of the Last Judgment, we see how. In that scene, he depicts both the good and the evil as these very muscular bodies. And um, within 
the philosophies of romanticism and, and Blake was an adherent to this idea um, as well. There was the, the, he had this strong belief in the, the dual nature of humanity, that there is grace and wickedness in everyone. And neither of those aspects, the, the, the good, the, the grace or the wickedness is wholly good or wholly bad. Um, so in romanticism, you see a lot of interest and in a lot of depiction of sort of um, anti-heroes. It's a common type in romantic art and poetry and, for the work, Blake uses watercolor, um, and he does so in a manner that was pretty unprecedented in, in watercolor representation. Um, he called his experiments with watercolor and tempera um, fresco, so even though it's not actually a fresco in that he was painting it on a wall, he did want to evoke the, the the sense that one gets from wall paintings of the early Italian Renaissance. Um, he absolutely hated oil painting. He called it a fetter to genius and a dungeon to art, um, in large part because it had, to him, this very detrimental effect uh, on color. So he was really interested in bright illumination, and he liked watercolor because um, it allowed for sort of the whiteness of the page to really come through. But in oil painting, white tends to deaden. It become, tends to turn yellow over time. And watercolor is good for really getting variations um, in tone, in these sort of smooth, fluid strokes. Um, And in this work, we see, again, he enhances the musculature and the the texture, especially of that great red dragon, but it's still very dark and contoured. I mean, we tend to think of of watercolors as these kind of, you know, often sort of luminous landscapes. And there there was the kind of watercolors that were being produced in England at the time in the early early 19th century were these sort of outdoor landscape scenes that that people would just go and do in their free time. And what Blake's doing with watercolor is quite different. Um, And and again, just the the use of contour uh, in the watercolor. So he he outlines his figures with pen. um, And and I'm sorry to keep quoting Blake, but his language is always just so fascinating. Um, So he, he said, of contours, he says, the great and golden rule of art as well as life is this, that the more distinct, sharp, and wiry the bounding line, the more perfect work of art. So he really believed in the importance of contour. Um... I, I really wanted to draw our attention to Blake's art because um, although history has tended to teach or ultimately treated Blake as this paradigmatic romantic poet, his experimentations with representation, especially representations of his sort of visionary thought and his imagination are things that are really unparalleled in, in the history of art. I'm going to wrap up today's episode now by talking about a painting um, that is perhaps the most famous of all of the ones that we've discussed today. It's one of the most famous paintings of early Romanticism. It's called The Raft of the Medusa, uh, and it's by a French artist um, named uh, Jericho, Théodore Jericho. And it was painted uh, for the uh, Big Salon exhibition in Paris in 1819. Uh, I believe Sarah's discussed the salon system in uh, previous episodes. And Jericho is a, um, a young artist who um, was very ambitious and who decided to make a painting of a very um, controversial recent event, 
which was the shipwreck of a ship called the Medusa, which was on an expedition in 1816 to uh, repossess Senegal for the French. And it was uh, basically driven into a sandbank off the coast of Africa by a captain who was really not qualified for the position, but who had been appointed a captain uh, as a basically a political reward. One of the most controversial things about this story is that the lower ranking, poorer members of the crew um, end up assembling a, a makeshift raft out of the wreckage of the ship. And um, this raft was supposed to be towed by one of the um, safety boats, but was cut loose basically to fend for itself. And about 150 people were floating on this raft for about 13 days. Only about 15 people survived. And there are really horrific accounts that were written um, by survivors of um, the survivors basically having to resort to cannibalism, eating those who had died um, or were weakened in order to survive. When Jericho decides to make a painting about this tragedy, he apparently made friends with the people who worked in a nearby hospital so that he could have um, access to the hospital. So they allowed him to come into the hospital um, in order to, to study basically people who were at various stages of suffering and death. And he also probably had some type of illicit arrangement um, with them in order to get amputated limbs uh, to take home and, and, and draw from and, and study in his studio. Um, you know, these were not like embalmed. I mean, these are rotting pieces of bodies. And so uh, eventually his friends and visitors, you know, I think stopped coming because the stench was so terrible from this rotting flesh from these cadavers and also because they were sort of afraid of disease. I mean, it's disgusting. Because Jericho went out of his way to study people who were suffering and dying and to study pieces of, of corpses, cadavers, um, there is an intense realism to the painting that is quite disturbing. Um, you really do get a sense of, of, um, the bodies that are being depicted, that they're really dead, um, th that they have the dead weight of corpses, um, that they have the, the sort of rotting um, stench of death about them. And yet uh, this painting is not an actual um, naturalistic depiction of what the scene would have looked like. So he took a number of um, sort of poetic licenses or artistic liberties. Uh, he did not overtly emphasize the fact that this was a scene of um, or, or was an event that was sort of haunted by the idea of cannibalism. That was one of the things that the popular press was really fascinated by. And there is one little moment, I think, where um, on the, sort of the bottom right, where you can see one figure who is sort of biting into someone else's butt, actually. Um, but other than that, you know, this isn't really about cannibalism. Um, so he makes that choice because he didn't really want to show the, the, the survivors as being uh, merely victims, right? He wanted to show the survivors in a positive light. Another uh, departure is that he shows way too many people still being on this raft. This is a moment where um, the people on the raft see the ship that will eventually rescue them, the Argus, off in the distance, and they're frantically waving to it, trying to get their attention. Um, and by this point, yeah, there weren't that many survivors. Why? Why so many people? Well, it allows Jericho to show all of those different stages of suffering and death that he had studied in the hospital. Um, 
it also allows him to create a really interesting dynamic composition where he piles all these bodies up on top of each other um, in basically two pyramid forms. So there's one triangle that goes up to the left, um, to the top of the mast with its little sail. And then the other one on the right goes up to the figure who is um, sort of standing up on a, a barrel and, and waving um, at the apex of this pyramid uh, to the Argus off in the distance. It also allows us to get a sense of, you know, how big this disaster really was, that it wasn't just a few people who were affected by it, but a lot, right? So even though he doesn't have all 150 people who were on the raft originally, there's still a bunch of people here. Uh, finally, the bodies that were shown are not really um, how they would have looked at the time of their rescue, right? These people had been out in the open water for 13 days. They were dehydrated. They were extremely malnourished. They would have been totally emaciated. And yet most of these people still have a lot of flesh on their on their muscles, basically, or a lot, a lot of flesh on their bones. Um, so uh, m- most of the figures, for example, again, in the, in the lower left-hand corner, you can see they've got biceps, um, they've got quads, they're pretty filled in, you know, they don't look, I mean, one of the figures sort of has a, a little bit of an, an indented um, belly area, torso area, but, you know, these don't look like um, the typical images you can probably call up in your mind of starvation. Why is that? Well, to return back to what I was talking about earlier with the tension between neoclassicism and romanticism, that legacy of the classical body of um, the sort of perfect ideal form that we learn to copy from the Greek and Romans um, is still very powerful for Jericho. And remember, he wants to make a work of art that's really going to make him famous, that's going to make him um, accepted and popular. And so he is showing here his mastery of that classical body. Today, this painting is actually housed in um, the Louvre. And when you go to see it, I think it still has um, an incredible attraction and fascination for us. And part of that is simply its scale. It's a very, very massive painting. It's about um, 16 feet tall and 23 feet wide. So it's larger than life size. And the effect of that, as we've talked about before on this podcast, scale is really important, is that it, it sort of swallows up your peripheral vision and it really sucks you into the world of the painting in that way. It's sort of like a little virtual reality device. Um, It makes you feel like you're right there present at the scene. And the composition with these two triangles that soar from the bottom of the painting towards the top really take your vision in and draw it upwards um, into the sort of stormy clouds at the top and then off into the the light horizon, um, you know, where the ship is going to come from to, to rescue them. Also, the, the, the tumult of the bodies, right? So um, the fact that there are um, so many bodies and they're all moving in different ways. Some people are um, sitting. Some people are laid out on their backs. Some people are laid out on their bellies. Some people are, are standing with arms raised. I mean, there's so much going on here that it really is like a visual feast, right? There's a lot for your eye to sort of wander through and look over and, and, and swirl around in this space. So this is um, basically, uh, as I mentioned before, one of the hallmarks uh, or icons of early romanticism, and we can see a lot of the romantic tendencies at play here, right? Uh, especially this 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 desire to create a kind of image that is immediate and raw, and that wraps you up in it. Um, so you can't be um, detached 
and and sort of view it from a distance in a neutral way that you have to be drawn up very emotionally into this world and that the world that you're drawn into isn't one of of um of rationality and clarity but one of confusion and drama we'll see these tendencies basically um become really influential throughout the rest of the 19th century and into the 20th and Jericho is a good place to end, I think, too, since um, as with many of our uh, quintessentially uh, romantic artisan writers, he died pretty young. Um, he did this painting and died about five years later. And he did a number of other works that are haunting in their own ways, but none that are quite so epically disturbing um, as, as the Raft of the Medusa. Actually, there's there's a wonderful anecdote just about how powerful this painting is. Um, a younger painter named Eugène Delacroix uh, went to Jericho's studio to see it. And the impression of it was basically so strong on him that he ran out of the studio and didn't stop running until he got home. This idea that, that art has this kind of emotional power over us, I think, is, is what romanticism is, is all about and is a great thing to talk about when everyone's you know being spooked by ghosts and uh hanging skeletons witches and and watching movies about witches it's the season yes so we hope our images haven't disturbed you too much um i hope they have yeah yeah Uh, if you'd like to be in touch with us, you can find us on the web at arthistory.today, on Facebook at facebook.com slash arthistorytoday, and on Twitter at arthisttoday. That's A-R-T-H-I-S-T-T-O-D-A-Y. And happy Halloween. Oh.